All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We are going to finish Hebrews chapter 1 this morning as we continue our sermon series called By His Son. Uh, We've been walking through the letter to the Hebrews. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have underneath the chair in front of you, it's on page 1275. And this morning I'll read verses 5 through 14. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for all the ways that you reveal yourself and your love and your grace through your word. And we thank you that your word tells us that you have revealed yourself ultimately in your son. And as we continue to begin this journey through the book of Hebrews, Lord, we do pray that you would use our time together in your word, that you would, Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to the glory and majesty of Jesus in these words. We do pray, Lord, that you would use this time and and your word and your spirit to to continue to shape us and form us. For you have told us in your word that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of your son. So do your masterful work in us this morning. Lord, help us to see how desperately we need you and how permanently we have you help us to worship as we see who your son is and how you have revealed him and therefore yourself we pray that you will strengthen our faith and deepen our communion with you that we would look ever forward to the day of his return when we get to be with you in your presence for eternity And so be with us now and use this time now to help us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For we pray in his name. Amen.
A young mother was telling me uh, not too long ago how she was, one day she was home by herself with her kids and there was a knock at the door. And so she goes to the door and when she opened the door, there was a woman standing there in in a dark suit. And the woman said, I'm with the FBI, I need to talk to you. And surely the young mother was thinking, oh, this is awesome. Um, So she had the presence of mind to ask the FBI agent, can I see some credentials? You know, can I see your badge? And the FBI agent very quickly and um, uh, willingly showed her this badge and some credentials so that she could see, so that the young mother could know that this woman is who she said she is. So she lets her in. Good news is nothing's wrong, nobody's in trouble or anything like that. It just had to do with a little background check thing that was happening. Um, and so that was, that was good news to her. But, um, you know, having that, that moment, you know, you're, you're, you're home alone, your kids are in here, and here's this person who wants to come into your house. And what, what's the difference between saying no and slamming the door and yes? It's the credentials, right? It's being able to see... That yes, this person is who they say they are and they, they should have the, the right to come in. You know, we've begun this journey now through the, the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews, as we've talked about, was written to some Hebrew Christians living in Rome in the first century. And we'll see more and more in the book that they, they've been through a lot. They've experienced some suffering. They're, they're looking down the barrel of even more. They're also, you know, they're trying to figure out this, this, New life in light of the gospel, right? They're, they're trying to understand more and more what it's like to live now that the Messiah has come. And what's interesting about the first chapter of Hebrews is there's not one imperative or command in the whole first chapter of Hebrews. And that's because what, what the author is doing is he is laying out the credentials of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords so that we might see that He has the authority and we might welcome Him in permanently. And so uh, it's what the author is doing, you know, we begun this last week, he's comparing Jesus. See, the, the way that the Hebrew Christians would have understand would have understood how God has revealed Himself to His people is through the prophets as well as through the work and the messages of angels. And so the author of Hebrews now is comparing the way Jesus reveals who God is to the prophets and to the angels. And last week we focused on the comparison of the way Jesus reveals God compared to the prophets. And this morning we'll talk about how he compares to the angels. And really it's the same message. All of Hebrews 1 really has that same message, that God's ultimate revelation of himself is in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So we're continuing that same thought this morning. God's ultimate revelation of who he is, what he's like, is in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And now we'll take a look at what the author says to reveal that what we know of God through Jesus is superior to what we had known through the angels. So if you're making an outline, we're going to talk about the way that the author fleshes out this unique relationship that Jesus, the Son of God, has with the Father. And we'll talk about how Jesus' ministry is superior to that of the angels and how he has this unchanging 
nature. Those are the things that the author is focusing on here as he shows that, that Jesus reveals who God is even more so than the angels. This unique relationship, superior ministry of Christ, and unchanging nature. So keep your Bibles open. If you're a guest with us, we just kind of walk right through these verses to see what they say. So let's do that. And let's take a look at verses 4 through 6. Uh, we, I said that I'd say a little more about verse 4 last week, so here it is, uh, coming through on that. Uh, let's take a look at verses 4 through 6 to see how Jesus reveals who God is better than the angels because of his unique relationship with the Father. Look at verse 4. It says that the Son has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, we're going to talk about that name in a minute, but something that is can be confusing and we want to make sure we're clear on is this concept of Jesus as the heir. Remember last week in verse 2, Jesus is called the appointed heir of all things. The Son of God is the appointed heir of all things. Here again, we see him inheriting something, a name. And it could lead us to believe that this is saying that the Son of God wasn't something and then became something. But that's actually not what it's teaching. And what, we, what helps us understand that is the context of who this was written to. Remember, this is written to Hebrew Christians in Rome. And in Roman society at this time, before a son would inherit things from his father... Uh, even though he's, his whole life he's the heir, before he would inherit those things, the father would publicly recognize his son, give public recognition, this is my son, and as well as his public approval of his son. And so that's what's actually taking place here. It's not about the son of God becoming something that he wasn't. It is about the father publicly revealing this is my son publicly declaring that this is my son and that's what he does this is the the author moves on in verse 5 to this giving of his name the name of son look at verse 5 he says for to which of the angels remember now he's comparing the way jesus reveals god as to the way the angels revealed who god was okay for to which of the angels did god ever say you are my son Today I have begotten you. And the answer is none. God never said that to an angel. He's only said this to the Son of God with whom he has this unique relationship. Now, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's from Psalm 2-7. And the Christians reading this, okay, with their Jewish ancestry, their knowledge of the Old Testament, they knew that Psalm 2-7 was about the Messiah. Okay, they would have been well aware of that. And so this is actually now what the author of Hebrews is doing is showing that Psalm 2-7 was a prophecy about when God the Father would publicly recognize his son, his eternal son, who's always been with him. And the reason that we know that is because of the way the Apostle Paul addresses Psalm 2-7. Okay, remember, the author of Hebrews learned everything he knows directly from the apostles. Look at how the apostle Paul used Psalm 2-7, Acts 13, 32 and 33. Paul is preaching and he says, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. 
today I have begotten you. You see that? And he also says basically the same thing in Romans 1, verse 4. In Romans 1, verse 4, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, the author of Hebrews is bringing in that verse to show that God has revealed, has recognized His Son publicly through the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ proves to us that He is God's Son, God's eternal Son, fully divine, fully God, just like God the Father Himself. That's what we see, and that's part of how we understand the uniqueness of Christ. He has has uniquely declared only about Jesus, that Jesus is this Son, and He's done that through the resurrection. Okay, So we see the divinity of Christ there, basically. But also, look at verse 5, the rest of verse 5 now. He says, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now that's a quote from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. And in 2 Samuel 7, God is telling David, King David, that he will have a human descendant who will sit on the throne and God will establish his kingdom forever. And the author of Hebrews is bringing in this quote from 2 Samuel 7 to say that that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay? That Jesus Christ, not only what we've seen is he's not only is the resurrection proof he's God's eternal divine Son, But he also is David's human descendant who would become king and his kingdom would be established forever. And so basically we're we're seeing what the scriptures teach, that Jesus is the fulfillment of both of these prophecies. He is God's son, fully God. He's also David's son or David's human descendant, fully man. Fully God, fully man. Now, the angels know this. And we know they know this because they worship him. Look at verse 6. He says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, that's a quote from Psalm 97 and Deuteronomy 32. It kind of says the same thing in both places. Now, let me talk about that word firstborn. When he brings the firstborn into the world. Now, that, that term is used 130 times in the Old Testament. And it always refers to someone's rank. Okay, that they are the supreme heir of that family. And so that's what it's referring to here as well. That's who Jesus is. He's the ranking, the top ranking individual. And so, but notice what he's saying. He's saying that when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels him. In other words, God's angels are worshiping the son of God when he comes into the world. Think about Christmas. What do we, what do we Celebrate at Christmas that the Son of God became man. And what happened when he was born in a manger in Bethlehem? The angels worship him, right? Glory to God in the highest. So we've seen it. And we also see the angels rejoicing at the empty tomb. We also see the angels worshiping the Son of God when he ascends on high and returns to heaven. So the angels worship him. So the point then is that God has revealed that David's royal human descendant is also God's eternal divine son who's not only superior to the angels but he's also worshipped by the angels now think about this 
This is so important for these formerly Jewish Christians, right? So they're Jewish Christians. And the idea of them worshiping a human being is really, really hard to swallow. Just like it would be for you and me and is for you and me. But now we're seeing that we worship a human being because he's also fully God. Right? He is, uh, and this makes him superior to the prophets who are simply human. It also makes him superior to the angels who are not human, but they're not divine. He is this unique individual with this unique relationship with God, fully God and fully man. Now, listen, last week we talked about how that, these same things are what make Jesus able to perfectly represent who the Father is to us. Okay? But also what he's beginning to develop here, the author, is that Jesus Christ is uniquely able to represent us before God the Father. Because he's one of us. He's fully God, but he's also fully one of us. Fully human. Now, Augustine said it like this. He said, God became man for this purpose. Since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other humans, you might now reach God through a man. And so the man, Christ Jesus, became the mediator of God and human beings. God became a man so that following a man, something you are able to do, you might reach God, which was formerly impossible to you. He uses that word mediator. This is a very important word. We're going to see more and more this developing theme of Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. God's promises to his people. Okay. Paul says Jesus is the mediator in 1 Timothy 2.5. He says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Mediator, mediator. Now, hopefully you actually haven't been to a situation where you've had to have mediation. But some of you may have. Uh, oftentimes when two parties are at odds with one another, they, they can go to court and try to settle things, but sometimes they get a mediator to kind of help them work things out. Now, whose side is the mediator on? Both. Both. He's on the side of party A, he's on the side of party B. And his whole job, if he's successful, he's going to reconcile those parties to one another. It's a mediator. And what the scriptures teach, that Jesus is the mediator. He's the only person who can represent the Father to us. He's also the only person who can represent us before the Father. Because he is one with the Father and he's also one of us. And so he is the mediator. Now, when we think about Jesus, therefore, we... We want to make sure we understand that, that, that that's part of our understanding of who he is, that that's doctrine, right? Uh, that we believe, as the scriptures teach, that he is fully God and he is fully man and therefore able to represent the Father to us and us before the Father. You know, a lot of people, when you talk about that as Jesus being the only mediator, that's when people struggle and they're like, well, why is he the only way? Why, why do you have to believe there's only one way to be reconciled to God? And the truth of the matter is, if God had given three ways, we would say, why didn't he give four? 
The problem is not with God. It's with us. And I'll flip that question. How could there possibly be a greater mediator between God and man than someone who is simultaneously fully God and fully man? I mean, how could you... We couldn't even imagine someone better qualified to represent who God is to us and who we are and be our representative before God. There's no way. So he is the mediator. He's got this unique relationship with the Father, but also a unique relationship with us. He is fully God. He's fully one of us. Okay, So the author is showing this and then showing not only is Jesus superior because of his unique relationship, but also because of his superior ministry. His ministry is superior to the angels. Take a look. 7 through 9. We see Jesus reveals who God is better than the angels do because of his superior ministry. Verse 7 says, Of the angels, God says, He makes... His angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now that's a quote from Psalm 104, verse 4. And here's what's interesting about that. So there, there's some use of metaphor. So it, this is saying that the, the one who created the angels made them able to move like the wind and destroy things like fire. Okay? But who made the angels? Look, this is amazing. Uh, he's saying... God is speaking here in verse 7. So of the angels, God says, He makes His angels. He's talking about the Son, right? So God the Father is saying that God the Son makes His angels, created the angels. And so what we see there is that God the Son has created the angels. And that goes right back to verse 2 where we see that He's the creator, co-creator of all things. Through Him all things were created. So He made the angels. So why is His ministry superior to the angels? Because He made them. They work for Him. Okay? That's who he is. He's the maker of the angels. And everything they do, they work for him. And we see that even heightened in verse 8. Because then we see the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look at verse 8. It says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. Again, this is God speaking to the Son. But of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, did you just see God call God God? Rick Phillips says, not only does this provide an important Old Testament foreshadowing of the doctrine of the Trinity, but it stunningly asserts that the King of glory, the true Messiah in whom righteousness will come is one with God himself. And so we're seeing that his ministry is this ministry of ruling and reigning over all things, sovereignly ruling and reigning over all things forever. Now why though, why this mention of uh, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions? Who are his companions? The other human kings. Who are just human kings. That's why God has anointed Christ with his gladness above all of them because he's not just a human king, he's also fully God. It's absolutely amazing. We have here, what he's, what he's getting at here is that Jesus, the Son of God, is the King of kings. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.15. Blessed, uh, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the way we understand that then is recognizing that he's fully human like the kings of the Old Testament, but he's also fully God. So he's exalted above them. 
But his ministry is to rule and to reign and the angels work for him. That's a really key thing here. The angels work for him. So when you see, when we see the work of angels in, through the Old Testament and the New, of course, you're seeing them carrying out the things that Jesus gave them to do. So in Genesis 22, an angel calls out to Abraham and says, don't plunge that knife into your son. He was working for Jesus. When uh, in Judges 6, angels bring certain commands to God's people. They were working for Jesus. 1 Kings 19, we see the angels supporting the needy, working for Jesus. In 2 Kings 19, we see the angels assisting God's people in battle. And they were working for Jesus. Who shut the mouths of the lions so that Daniel wasn't devoured in the lion's den? Somebody working for Jesus. Okay. So angels, which uh, really exist and are really active, are also completely under the orders of the king of kings. I don't, you ever been to Buckingham Palace? Or have you ever seen video of Buckingham Palace and the guards? The guards at Buckingham Palace, you know, the red coats, big fluffy hat, right? And if, if you've seen, you've probably seen video of people kind of trying to distract them, get up in their face. And people yell and scream and dance and juggle and do all this thing and throw cats or whatever, you know, whatever they're trying to do. And they just stand there, right? They don't move. I'm not even sure they blink. I don't know how they do that. But they literally just do not move. Because they don't answer to you. Now, if the king or queen comes, they're off running. They'll do anything immediately. And they'll do exactly what they're told. Because they work for them. So one of the things we have to understand about angels is angels work for the king of kings. They do exactly what he says and he sends them to do what he would have them do. This is why, by the way, you know, if you, if you grew up in a Roman Catholic background, you may have been taught to pray to angels. And I would say this is an area where you would see that you don't. We don't pray to angels because they don't answer to us. And why would we pray to the subordinate when we have been given through the gospel the ear of the king of kings, right? So we pray to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit alone. Okay, but we also recognize that the angels not only worship the Son of God, but they also work for the Son of God. He's got this unique relationship with the Father and a superior ministry to the angels. Third, he talks about the unchanging nature of the Son, verses 10 through 14. Look at this, okay? So what we want to see here is that Jesus reveals God better than the angels because of his unchanging nature. Look at verse 10. Again, this is God speaking to the Son. And he says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your ears will have no end. Now, here's what's so sweet about this. you remember who this letter's to? So these Christians in Rome who have gone through some really big challenges, and they're looking down the barrel even, even more. And he, this is a quote from Psalm 102. And if you are able, read Psalm 102 later. What, what the author does is pulls from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. That's what we just read there in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. But if you read all of Psalm 102, 
you see a person who is in great distress. Okay, they say, uh, one of the verses says, Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. And you see that he's gripped with his own mortality. He's having trouble eating. His enemies are closing in. He's facing significant challenges. Just like these Hebrew Christians were and just like you and I are right now. And so what gives hope to the psalmist as he says, I'm freaking out here. The immutability of God. Right? Here's what he's saying. Everything is basically crumbling around me. But you, God, you remain. You are the same. And your ears, your years have no end. And now we know that this is actually was said by God about the Son. So we know that the Son, who created all things... While everything is crumbling around us, we can take tremendous hope in the fact that He doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We too can take comfort in the fact that Jesus doesn't change, especially, especially because He doesn't change, and which means that He's always the same, which means. Always conquers his enemies. Always. Always. Look at verse 13. It says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet? Again, the answer is he never said that to any angels. He's only said that to the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, we talked a little bit about this verse last week because he alludes to it back up in verse 2. And the, uh, it, it's, about, it's ultimately about the resurrection. We talked about that last week. But it's also about a king who conquers his enemies. That's a picture of a king who has conquered his enemies. And that leads us to be thinking about, well, then, who are the son's enemies? What are the son's enemies? Well, what did he battle with? In his earthly life and ministry. What do we learn about him, right? Did he battle with particular people? He went to battle with the devil and his temptations. And he won because he always wins. He went to battle with demons who had possessed people. And he pulled them out, cast them out. Because he won. He wins. He always wins. He went to battle with leprosy and various sicknesses. He went to battle with blindness and physical deformities and abnormalities. And he won because he always wins. He went to battle with self-righteousness and pride. And he won because he always wins. He went to battle with our inability to fulfill the law and be righteous in God's sight on our own. And he won because he always wins. He went to battle with death and he won. Because he always wins. And he conquered these enemies in his earthly life and ministry to give us a foretaste of how he operates, the type of conquering king he is. And we might say, well, that's awesome. So so one day, all these things will be gone forever. But I'm suffering now. Why doesn't he conquer my enemies, these things that are plaguing me and causing misery in my life right now? This is an invitation. See, this is a big part of what this book is about. Facing the enemies 
that plague us, that cause us misery, that we, we're struggling against, that are not flesh and blood, okay? struggling against these enemies with trust that since he, he doesn't change, he can do anything he wants at any time. So there must be a reason that he's allowing all these things to happen. It's an invitation to face our suffering and the things we're struggling with willingly and trustingly. Willingly and trustingly. Have you ever faced suffering willingly? Who's got braces? Anybody got braces? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. I had braces for like 11 billion years. And, and the thing about braces is they put this metal on your teeth and a, a wire goes all around. And then you go to the orthodontist every few weeks and he cranks this thing with like a barn tool and your teeth are all moving in your skull. But I did that willingly. My mom uh, willingly went and had her nose broken. You see, when she was little, she had broken her nose as a, as a young girl, and it didn't heal right. And so when she was uh, an older woman with uh, some kids, and she couldn't breathe right through her nose because of this. So my dad at some point said, hey, why don't we, let's get it fixed. Let's go see a doctor and see what it would take. And the doctor said, oh, yeah, we can fix that. We've got to re-break your nose and set it right. And then you'll be okie-dokie. And I still remember, I don't know if it's from pictures or from actually seeing it, but when she came home, she had like black eyes and bandages all over. I'm like, Mom! But she willingly suffered. Why? Because she believed something. Why does a kid get braces? He believes something. We believe when we willingly face challenges, we believe that on the other side, we will say it was worth it. That's the trust part. We can willingly face these things, trusting that Jesus is in control. And on the other side, we will say it was worth it. I mean, this is ultimately trying to help us understand what Jesus has done and is doing in us and for us. Look at verse 14. He, he finishes this comparison between the Son of God and angels by saying this. Are they, are angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we too are heirs. We too are inheriting something. Through faith, we inherit salvation. Now, here's what we have to understand. Salvation really has three aspects to it. Um, salvation, we talked about last week how Jesus has provided purification for our sins. If we are in Christ, if our faith is in Christ, there's nothing on our record. The etch-a-sketch has been shaken. It is clear, remember? And we would say that is how we have been saved. We have been saved from the penalty of our sin. We have been purified of our sins. But salvation also involves the fact that we are being saved. We are being saved right now from sin's power. And we're guaranteed that one day our conquering king who always wins will return and he will, he will save us from sin's presence. We have been liberated from the penalty of sin. We are being liberated from the power of sin. We will be delivered even from the very presence 
of sin. And so now is when we trust him. We know what he's doing. He's at work. He always wins. We willingly face these things with trust in him because we believe that on the other side, we will say it was worth it. And, and the, what's interesting, and we'll see this more and more, the model for this is the Savior. There is no one who willingly faced as much suffering as the Son of God. He went first. Why? Well, to save us so that we could be forgiven because he, only He can mediate between us and God. Yes. Why else? As we'll see as we continue in this study, the author of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame. In other words, when Jesus thinks about, thought about you and I being redeemed, and even though he would have to face unimaginable suffering, he said, I'm going to do it because I know on the other side, I will say it, is, it was worth it. And he invites us to follow now. Now we follow him, the one who willingly suffered because it would be worth it. The eternal son of God who is also the human king of kings who rules and reigns over all things. The angels are at his beck and call. He always conquers his enemies. He never changes. And he says, follow me. And so we can face every difficult challenge in our life willingly and trustingly because he has already proven that in the end we will say it was worth it. Hang on. Let's pray. Father, um, I know that some of us are facing some things and we're thinking there's no way something is worth this. But we're so challenged and changed by the reality that we can't even begin to understand the depth of suffering that our Savior faced on the cross on our behalf. Uh, Would you help us to see more and more that he is the one who has the entirely unique relationship with you and with us because he's one with you and he's one of us. Would you help us to see his ministry is superior to anything we could imagine angels or prophets doing? He is the king of kings. Would you help us find comfort and peace in the fact that our good king who has provided permanent purification for our sins does not change? Would you help us face Everything we face, willingly and trustingly. Because we were worth it for you, and so we know that it will be worth it for us. Remind us of the day when we will see you face to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.